from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics and some other things. My book just out this September is Words on the Move, Why English Can't and Won't Sit Still Like Literally. And I should say that in a couple weeks, my new book, Talking Back, Talking Black, will be out from Bellevue Literary Press. I just got some copies of that one. And, you know, whatever is inside it, it's one of those books that's physically so cute that you just want it as a stocking stuffer (laughs) on that subject. Stocking stuffing. You just know that at this time of year, we have to do a holiday special at Lexicon Valley. And I thought I might focus on Christmas because Christmas offers various language and linguistic insights for us to end this curious year of 2016. So why don't we kick it off with one of my favorite of the modern Christmas carols, Holly Jolly Christmas, sung, of course, by Burl Ives. Have a holly jolly Christmas, it's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow. But have a cup of cheer. I've always loved that one. Actually, the best one for me is Sleigh Bells. Just try to stay in tune singing Sleigh Bells all the way through. But in any case, some of you may have read the New York Times Magazine article a week or three ago that talked about how words are actually represented in the brain and how they're at varying distances from one another, depending on how meanings are related. And what's interesting is that those meanings and their relationships change over time, not only in the individual brain, but in the communal brain. And you talk about a word like jolly. If we could examine the brains of people speaking English in, say, the 1400s, 1300s, then jolly actually had an alternate meaning of, frankly, horny. Now, we don't think of it that way, but that actually segues us into the first Christmas carol that I would like to take a quick look at, and that is the beautiful It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, to refresh our memories in case we need it. Here is that lovely Christmas carol. Now, when I say segue from that thing I was talking about before, it's because you want to zero in on this verb, come. And I'm just going to put it this way. That word used to be spelled the way it should be spelled. You can just imagine the way it would be more convenient to spell it, the way you would like to present it as being spelled to somebody who was learning how to read. That's really the way it was spelled. In Old English, it was kuman, and that was with a U-M. But no, we can't write C-U-M. Instead, it's C-O-M-E, which seems like comb. I'm teaching my little daughter how to read right now. And those words like come and some and tongue are annoying because you can't just sound them out. So it really should just be C-U-M. And we would pronounce it come just like we pronounce some as in I can't do the sum, S-U-M, or plum. None of this O business. But 
We're just stuck with it. Why is that? It's interesting. Imagine C-U-M written in cursive. Now, especially the way writing was a very long time ago, it was easy to mistake the U for just more M or more N or more R. So there was a scribal practice, which was that in a word like come, instead of writing it that way, you change the U to an O just to avoid that lack of clarity. And everybody knew that it was pronounced as a U. And now here we are with that today. It just got stuck that way. We're used to seeing it that way. And so it's like throwing rice at a bride or hanging garlic in a doorway. And so some and come and tongue are not spelled properly. These are the kinds of reasons why English's spelling system is so crazy. It's not any one reason. It's a whole lot of interesting accidents that create the orthographic torture that today is the English language. The past tense of come is came for us. That's not what it should be. If everything just marched along from Old English the way one would expect, then the past tense should be something like cum today. And that could easily have evolved into being come so that you would have a present tense come and a past tense come. But certainly cum would have been quite plausible. You get the feeling that that little confusion was bothering English speakers because England had been invaded by Scandinavians speaking Old Norse. And Old Norse was a lot like Old English, but not that much like it. And these Old Norse speakers were learning Old English badly. And part of what was bad about it is that they were sprinkling their version of Old English with all sorts of their own words. One of those words was the past tense of come for them, which was kvam. So kvam became our came. And that's why we have come and came instead of what really could have been come and come. Except there's always an except. There are still dialects of English, ways of speaking English, where you can use come as the past tense. I'm guessing that most listeners to this podcast may not be familiar with that, but you do hear it, especially in vernacular dialects. And the only example I can think of to play you is actually from an old radio show, Milton Berle. I think a lot of us know about him as an early TV pioneer. And if you're a certain age, you remember him popping up as an older gent on variety shows, etc. Milton Berle had been in the business for a long time, and you would almost know he had a radio show, too. It never really caught on. And when you listen to it, you can kind of tell why. But it's always interesting to take a peek into shows like that just for, for example, listening to language things. So here is an episode of Milton Berle's not very successful radio show in 1947. And we're listening to a character talk about something that happened to her. This is Pert Kelton, who was the original Alice Crampton, for those of you who care. And listen to how she uses come as a past form. Yes, and you have a question concerning outdoor life? Yeah, how can I stop my husband from being so nuts about fishing? Your husband is crazy about fishing? Crazy. He won't even step into the bathtub without a pole and a can of worms. Fishing in a bathtub? Well, that's ridiculous. That's what I thought. Till the other night he come out drying himself with a flounder. Is he still a fishing fan? Not after his last trip. He come home after being gone for two weeks. Did he catch anything? Yeah, from me. Across the mouth. Thank you very much, Mrs. Feeney. Thank you. 
So there you go with somebody who's talking about I come yesterday. All of that from it came upon a midnight clear. That's the sort of thing that one might hear amidst the beauty of that song. Lo, how a rose air blooming. I never knew this one until I was about a teenager. This one didn't get around as much on the kitty specials and things. But here's how this one goes. You usually seem to encounter it in beautiful choral arrangements. Hath sprung. Hath, not has, but hath. English develops, and your third person singular is th, and it becomes s. This is something that really takes over in the 1600s, and you know, nobody quite knows why. It doesn't really follow from anything. There's no regular sound change from th to s that makes it predictable. This time, it's not those Vikings. That's not the way Old Norse works. All we know is that at a certain point, starts in the 1500s and really gets rolling in the 1600s, you're not saying he speaketh, you're saying he speaks. And after a while, it completely takes over. Weird process, and linguists are learning more about it by the decade. Apparently, it was something that women started. Women in general, as we've heard in earlier podcasts that I've done, are more creative as far as the language changing. Men are kind of uptight and keep things the way they are. If something new is creeping in and it's not something that's happening on the conscious level, that tends to be women who are doing it. And you can see women doing it in letters. And so, for example, even back in the 1500s, you have a contrast between how Henry VIII uses the third person singular and how his daughter, Queen Elizabeth, uses it once she's queen. So Henry VIII is writing to the ill-fated Anne Boleyn in 1528. He says, written with the hand of him which desireth as much to be yours as you do to have him. So desireth, and that to him is an arch. That's what the form is. 1591, Queen Elizabeth is writing, my dear brother, as there is naught that breeds more forethinking repentance and aggrieved thoughts than good turns to harm the giver's aid, etc., etc. So she has her s, whereas her father preferred th. Very interesting thing, and it's not an accident there that Queen Elizabeth was not a man. We would expect this to be a change led by women. As time went on, the th's changed to s's, but in the verbs that you used most heavily, the th's tended to hold on. You say something an awful lot, then old irregularities will hold on. So just like man, woman, child, men, women, children, it's not an accident that it isn't rarer things that have those sorts of plurals. In the same way, half, doth, safe instead of says, those held on longer. And so even Queen Elizabeth, right after that sentence in 1591, said, so hath no bond ever tied more honorable minds, etc., etc. And so for that reason, lo, how a rose air blooming, which was translated from the German, as people say, could have half even as late as the 1800s. It was archaic by then, but artful. But th to s is a linguistic mystery. All we know at this point is that women started doing it. And pretty soon, everybody was doing it. What's going on here? You can barely be 
American, at least over the age of about 30, and not know what this is from. And of course, here is what it's from. Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown! And then they sing. funny to get a look at this now good lord the animation was awful but this special is part of being an american person i feel all cozy inside and i start wanting bad snacks what's interesting about the lyric is glory to the newborn king now in terms of what some of our pedants tell us shouldn't that be newly born why is there new born and it gets you thinking about old lee only in late middle english Do you have Lee coming in as this adverbial suffix? And that's why in other layers of English that we still use, you don't have to have Lee. And so, you know, fast asleep, it's perfectly okay to have an adverb that doesn't have Lee at the end of it. You walking slow, et cetera. The reason that feels right is because in earlier English, it was quite ordinary and really the only way to do it. The Lee is kind of a novelty. It's funny, you see the Lee in places where you don't think of it as a Lee. And so, for example, the word early, what's er? As it happens, that's air, as in before. And so it's kind of before Lee. Early starts out as airly. Now, Lee, where'd it come from? You don't just dig up a suffix underground. It can't be invented. Lee started out as a word leak that meant body of all things. That's what it meant, leak. And then you could say galik. And what that meant was in the body of, roughly. And in the body of, you can see how that could evolve to mean similar to. And then that becomes like in our sense of it. And so you would have something like slow-like. And so slow in the body of slow. And then if you say leak again and again, pretty soon you have Lee. And so slowly, that's where Lee came from. It's funny how these things work. Whenever you see a suffix, it is usually something that used to be a whole word that then sucked onto some other word and just became a husk of its former self. It's kind of like anglerfish, actually. You know, anglerfish down in the deep sea and they have the thing hanging in front of their eyes that's bioluminescent and they can catch things and eat them. The big anglerfish are women. Talk about women leading again. The big anglerfish are women. The male anglerfish are these tiny little things that swim around. They often can barely eat by themselves. All they have to offer is sperm. And the male anglerfish sucks onto some part of the woman. It can be on her head. It's weird seeing photographs of this. And it sucks on and it secretes an enzyme such that he becomes undetachable from the female's body and just provides sperm. He's just this little sperm machine and he just stays that way. Other men can be like that. And so the woman is decorated by these male hangers on. After a while, the male can lose its eyes. It can lose the organs that it had. And pretty soon, the male is just a bump on the female. That's how Lee works. And so something that starts out as like sucks on to an adjective like slow and just becomes a little slow Lee. Now, that's called grammaticalization by the experts. That sounds like a disease. So let's just think of the anglerfish. 
Notice how in romance languages, that's something else. So if you're going to express this Lee concept in French, then it's with mon, M-E-N-T. And so slowly, lentement, or in Spanish, mente. My <laughs> friend in college used to say that he would listen to Spanish language TV and he didn't know Spanish, but all he could ever quite remember is that the announcer seemed to be saying, simperamente, which doesn't mean anything, but simperamente would have been some sort of adverb, mente. And so in romance, it's from the word for mind. That's what the mente is. In Germanic, the adverb comes from body, and in romance, it comes from mind. I wonder if that has something to do with the essence of Germanic speakers as opposed to romance speakers. There's some arrival-style Worfianism for you. Let us speculate. Away in a manger. I frankly have never liked this one, but we need to talk a little bit about manger. Away in a manger, no crib for a man. The Lay down his sweet head. The you know, if you are going to deal with Middle English sources, then Jesus was not in a manger. He was in a penthouse, of all things. And the reason is because penthouse is one of those words that is wrong, but we've just accepted it. And so imagine if you're dealing with late Latin and there's a word appendicium. And there was. It meant something hanging, append, appendicium. As that word goes through time and sound change ravages it, and you get into early French, appendicium becomes appendis. And then you just know that that ah is going to drop off and you have appendis. Okay? That's the French that started leeching into English when French was the language of England for two or three centuries. And so you have this pentis. Now, for people who knew French, pentis sounded like it had something to do with the word pente, pent, which meant slope. And so you're thinking, pentis, is that, say, a slope house? And so people thought, okay, it's penthouse. And what it meant was a little house with a slope, such as a manger, such as something that Jesus might be in. So you can read sources where Jesus is in his penthouse. The idea of a penthouse being something too expensive up in the sky really only dates to the 1920s when buildings of that kind started being constructed. I'm going to assume New York City. Maybe that's a little city-centric of me, but that's very late in the game. Before that, a penthouse is a very humble place where a Jesus could be born. Jesus Christ. Christ Mass. Merry Christmas. So it's Christ Mass. What's that word mass? A mass is supposed to be some clump of things. So why is it this ritual as well? Well, that comes from misa in Latin, and that means sent. At the end of a mass, one might hear ite misa est, and that means go. Dismissed is, meaning go, the assembly is dismissed. Misa. That misa, as knowledge of Latin started to wear away among many people who would hear such a thing, became the English word mass, which just meant the whole ceremony. In the 1500s in particular, there were people who were getting really upset 
at how many French words and particularly how many Latin words were just pouring into the poor, noble English language that's supposed to be staying more or less like German. And instead, you have words like profit and conclusion and grammar, none of which anybody who wrote Beowulf would have recognized. So there was a call to replace, say, a word like profit with foresayer, with English roots. Conclusion could be end say, or grammar could be speech craft. And in the same way, there were some early translations of the word that we now use as mass that was ascendness. So ite, misa est, go, you are dismissed, you are sent. Well, it could be that instead of calling it a mass, you call it a sendness. But that didn't catch on. Don't you kind of wish it did? It would be nice in a meaningless way if English were more lexically transparent. Speechcraft in particular, I've always liked. Not crucified, but crossed. Merry Christmas. Merry. Nice word. Makes you think of ale. Merry just meant brief. That's what it meant. We can reconstruct that in Proto-Indo-European, the grandfather of most of the languages of Europe, stretching into most of the languages of Iran and India as well, that word would have been something like mrech, which sounds like mucus, but it would have meant brief. So mrech to merry. That mrech went all over Europe and it became all sorts of things. Becoming merry is pretty easy. If something is brief, then its brevity might be part of its being pleasant. And there's a short step from pleasant to merry. So there you go. But there are all sorts of places that brief can go. In Greece, mrech becomes brach. So mrech, brach, 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 like that. Brach. Well, that became the word for upper arm because the upper arm is shorter than the other part of the arm. And next thing you know, brachion is the whole arm. Latin has brachitella at a certain point, and that means folded arms, and it referred to a kind of pastry. Well, Germans took that up as bretzitella. Mess with that a little bit. Bretzitella, pretzel, and that's where you get pretzel. So a word that meant brief refers to a pretzel in German, and then we get the word from them. I highly recommend Philadelphia's nasty street soft pretzels. They are kind of mucoid too, but in a wonderful way. I salivate as I think of them right now. The later in the day, the better. Oh, I wish you could get them in the mail. In any case, in France, it became the word for a garment that was on the upper body, and that evolved gradually into brassiere which is worn on the upper body. So you have this mrech word that people are using in southern Ukraine. You know, they've got horses and wheels and they're living probably those short lives that we associate with people of a good 8,000 years ago. And their little word mrech, which means not too long for us, is merry. Elsewhere means arm. Elsewhere means pretzel. Elsewhere means bra. Nothing can more beautifully demonstrate that a word is not something that is. A word is something going on. Words are just like flora and fauna. What we feel to be eternal is really just one stage. Each word is a process. It's neat to think of language as something like that, despite the majesty of the static printed page. 
On the note that the pleasant usually shouldn't be too long, I hope that this was at least a little bit pleasant, but we're not going to make it too long. We're going to end it here so that you can go off and celebrate your holidays. And I can think of no better way to go out than with Gordon McRae trying to sing Go Tell It on the Mountain in 1964. This recording has been part of my life for my entire life. And as spryly tacky as it is for me, nothing more sums up the holiday season than this cutely arranged version of Go Tell It on the Mountain. So go tell it, Gordon. Go tell it on the mountain Over the hills and everywhere Tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show was edited by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening and see you back here in two weeks. Go tell-